The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, April 24th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Comcast-Time Warner merger is off. Just too complex. Too many regulatory hurdles. And you know, when every Republican goes against regulation and rails about this on the hustings, please bring this merger up, right? I want these guys to go into states served quote-unquote, by Comcast or Time Warner. And I want, you know, Ted Cruz and Scott Walker and all those guys to tell voters, you know, if it weren't for these burdensome, horrible regulations, Time Warner and Comcast would have merged. Isn't it upsetting that they didn't merge? How much better life would have been had they merged but for these regulations? Because it's so unfair, too. I mean, poor, tiny Comcast, like a naked infant blinking away the first rays of sunlight. So vulnerable and Poor Time Warner, like a foal, a newly birthed foal, unsteady, trying to walk. So fragile are you. You need each other. But no, regulators won't allow it. Actually, okay, yeah. So a combined company probably wouldn't have addressed the shared deficiencies that these two companies apart exhibit all the time, you know? where they give you a window of, all right, the repairman will be by sometime between 6 a.m. and 2019. But can we really celebrate what we're left with? We are left with Comcast and Time Warner, the old Comcast and Time Warner that we've always known, right? Unmolested with $120 cable bills. All right, so they won't be $140 cable bills. I guess with those savings, I could rent a remote control for about nine months. That's how much they charge. On the show today, I spiel about a coliseum. I say goodbye to the hockey arena of my youth in the only way I know how, with a dollop of cynicism. And dear Prudence will be by to offer her advice on love, family, and reconciliation. But first, the results of the first gist, Story Palooza. Yesterday on the gist, hey, you could go back and listen. That's the great thing about podcasts. We talk with Matt Dix. He is, I call him the most interesting man in the world. He's an author. He's a teacher. He's a storyteller. But he's been overseeing our project. And what we've been doing, as you know, because you just listened, right? You went back and you listened, is we asked you guys for submissions. And we got a number of good stories. And we went through and played some clips from some of the best stories. But now, Matt Dix, storyteller extraordinary, now Matt Dix will be coaching the winner. And now we are going to call that winner. Frank Kennedy. Hello, Frank. This is Mike Pesca. I'm here with Matthew Dix. How are you? I'm great. You? I'm, I'm good. Matt, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Frank? Everyone's great. Matt, you want to tell them the news? So, Frank, we have chosen your story as the one that we'll be working on. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's great. I'm very pleased. So, Frank, what we liked about your story was... You seemed uh, relatable. That kind of doesn't mean anything, but to me and Matt, you seem more like an everyman, less like a person. I I think I use the phrase an unpretentious person. Uh, I don't know. I think even a pretentious person would say I'm unpretentious, but is that an apt description of you? How do you, you know, think of yourself in relationship to uh, the story you're telling here and your son and so forth? Well, I have my moments, but I do tend to blend in. 
the the story is pretty much from my life and me trying to deal with this autism thing, which I still don't understand. Yeah. Frank, I love, I mean, just listening to you, just two things you just said that tell me that you're going to be really successful. You say, I have my moments. So you're telling, you know, it'd be easy for you to say, I'm the salt of the earth, but you're (laughs) acknowledging that, you know, you've got your moments. And the fact that you're acknowledging that this autism thing is not something you have a grip on at all. I think those two things really say something about you as a storyteller. You're not going to be the kind of person that's standing on the stage to be self-aggrandizing or to show us um, all the wonderful things you've learned, just sort of the struggle instead. And I think that's going to really make you successful. Well, this autism thing has really humbled me and my family. And it's also at times thrilling and exciting. That's great. That's really great. I think we've done an excellent job, Mike, picking the person. Yeah, I think that you, a lot of times what we look for in our stories is how it changed you. We do not have to prod. We do not have to push you in that direction. It seems like obviously this obviously has changed you and made you think about yourself a lot. Right. And at the same time, it sounds like it's not the end of the story either. So we're not going to be sort of wrapping this up into a neat little package at the end. It's a journey that you're on and you're just giving us a a little sliver of that journey, and I think that's going to be great. I kind of hate the way sometimes the media is beginning to represent autism, and they often resolve an issue in 30 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour, and it's not even close. Tell us uh, a little about yourself. Where do you live? Tell us about your family. What do you do? I live in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, near Philadelphia. I have two boys, one wife. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and I do some business consulting. You had a good line in there, Frank. I don't know if you noticed. I'm going to use it if you don't. You said you have two kids and one wife. That's a laugh line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. He <laughs> knows. All right. Yeah. All right, Matt, give Frank some homework. What should he do for our next uh, on-air meeting? All right, so Frank, you should, um, if you haven't started already, you should work on writing that story out. After you're done writing it, don't think about this as you're writing it, but once you've finished writing it, I want you to go sort of sentence by sentence. The goal isn't going to be that you're going to memorize the story. Uh, you're certainly going to have some room to play while you're on stage and you know, be extemporaneous. But after you've written it, I want you to go sentence by sentence and ask yourself if the sentences you've written have done one of two things. Have they revealed character? So they're revealing things about you and your son that will help you know, bring that final moment to clarity. And are they advancing the action? So those are the two things you really want all of the sentences that you're going to be saying to do. Reveal character and advance action. Anything else that you put in there is probably going to not push the story forward and you'll lose some momentum. I'm famous for it, frankly. I find very funny things to say and I stick them in my stories. And then my wife tells me they're very funny, but they have nothing to do with the story. So get them the hell out of there. So it's a good way to sort of self-edit yourself and keep your story moving quickly and having that momentum to the end so you keep the audience right with you. So work on, does that make sense to you? Well, these tips are a good way to edit myself, and having a wife is also a good way to edit yourself. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> My wife says the same thing. So could you give us, and I think maybe we'll go back once it gets really good, and we'll do a before and after comparison. Let's say we were sitting around, you're talking to uh, you know, your cousin or whoever, uh, they're familiar with their, your son. They don't know the specifics of this. How would you tell that story? I don't want to put you on the spot. And you could 
forget Matt's lesson for now. Don't self edit and say, wait, is this line going forward? Just tell that story as you would in a social setting, if you would. I got to tell you something that happened to me the other day with uh, Calvin. He came home on one of these half days from school that elementary school has. And I met him at the bus and I offered to take him to lunch. And as you know, Calvin's not very verbal. And I really didn't expect much of an answer, even though his language has been improving lately. He looked at me and he said, five, five, five. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know what he wanted, but I began to think about things that he might want. There are several places in our area that he likes, the pizza shops. There's a, a Wawa, which for is a a touchscreen ordering, which he loves. There's McDonald's, there's Wendy's, there's uh, another deli. And I couldn't figure out what he wanted. I know he's hungry because he loves to eat, but I didn't want to get defeated by a little second grader. And uh, I kept thinking, what could it mean? What, what, what would it be? I racked my brain. I was thinking what he likes to do. And He's a very observing kid, and I remember riding around the car with him recently, and he was looking out the window, and uh, it dawned on me that, and I turned on, and I said, you want, to go to, you want to go to Wendy's, don't you, Calvin? He said, yes. And with a big smile on his face, uh, I realized, even though I had passed this Wendy's uh, very near our house, maybe a thousand times, I never realized until I pulled it out of the back of my brain that Wendy's is at 555 West Lancaster Avenue. And he knew that. We went and had lunch. We didn't say much. But I knew that I needed to... I knew I needed to listen to him more. Yeah. That's great, Frank. That was good. That was really good. This is great. This is great raw material to work with. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. We'll be in touch. We'll uh, we'll be doing some in-depth lessons, but you've got your first assignment to write it out and remember momentum. Remember the two things again. Matt, say the two things. Every sentence needs to reveal character or advance action. I wrote them down. All right. I'm looking forward to getting better. Thank you. Frank Kennedy, uh, he's going to be the storytelling pupil to the master. Thank you again, Frank. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate it. Take care. I'm a big fan of the great courses, which I have talked about. The general headline is fascinating video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts. The specific is this one lecture series, The Skeptic's Guide to American History, The Skeptic in Question, or Leading You into an Earned Place of Skepticism is award-winning professor Mark Stoller, talks about myths and misconceptions about America's past. So this means new perspectives on pivotal events. Like, let's reconsider Herbert Hoover. I love reconsidering Herbert Hoover. So The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary. It has over 500 series on history, science, philosophy, more. You could get them online. You could get them streaming with their own app, a DVD, or a CD. Here's our limited time only offer. The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including the one I'm talking about, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. You get 80% off the original price. Limited time only. So hurry. And that is true. We offered this once before, and then we took it away. Now we're giving it back. 
Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. So from time to time on The Gist, we engage in what we call a post-prudence impact statement, where we get one of the people that Dear Prudence, our advice columnist, gave advice to, call them up and see how the advice landed. But we're going to get out in front of that process right now, literally, temporally. We're not going to wait to see how the advice landed. We're going to give the advice right here, right now. And joining me is Emily Yaffe, who writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. So I've asked you to pick a letter, and I will read the letter You want to give me a uh, quick summary of what about the letter stood out or what we should expect from this letter or how you pick your letters? I liked this letter because I have developed a subspecialty in really lousy parents of adults and how grown people try to navigate their relationship with an inadequate parent. And often this is heightened when the grandchildren come. So this letter deals with that whole issue. Here's the letter. You ready? Dear Prudence, I'm a happily married man with a toddler, Tommy. My parents divorced in the 80s after my father had an affair. He subsequently neglected his three kids financially and emotionally, only showing up for special events. He's superficially charming, but self-centered and incapable of committing to meaningful relationships. The worst part is that he serially dates very young women from impoverished backgrounds. As a 65-year-old man, he is currently living in the Philippines and dating a 27-year-old Filipina. Because this behavior strikes me as irredeemably creepy and exploitative, I cut off communication with him five years ago. After having rocky relationships with him for years, my sisters have cautiously reconciled. Now that I have a son, I'd like for little Tommy to know his granddad. Furthermore, I don't want the baggage of my relationship with my father to burden my son. But while my head would like to reconcile with him, my heart is still disgusted by him. My wife has a preference for her son knowing his grandfather, but would support me either way. Do you have any advice on the best course of action? Signed, unlike my father. What do you think, Prudy? Well, I love this letter because this this sounds like Grandpa is a classic narcissist who was a terrible father to his children. And there's a question mark over whether he could even be a decent grandfather. I do hear from people who are really conflicted because they have a terrible relationship with a mother or father who they have to concede has turned out into to be a good grandparent. So we don't even have any information here. I Sometimes people back themselves into corners where they think they have to make kind of an engraved in stone decision. Unlike my father does not. He can see how it goes. His father shows up at a family event with a girlfriend who's younger than the babysitter. Okay, does he is he interested in playing with Tommy? How does it go? Unlike my father, can kind of play it by ear. And if he finds, you know what, it is toxic for me to be with this guy and my son's not getting anything out of him, then you can say, no, I want to stay with having cut off relationships. Yeah, and it seems that all that Unlike My Father is looking for is something pretty much superficial, uh, special events, a nice enough relationship so that the kid meets the grandfather. The grandfather lives in the Philippines. And and by the way, I agree. I think it's 
pretty kind to describe the serially dating women from impoverished backgrounds, 65-year-old dating a 27-year-old from the Philippines. He describes that as irredeemably creepy. Yeah, I'd say that's an apt phrase. (laughs) Hello? Hello. Is this unlike my father? Yes, it is. Okay. Whenever I give one of those names, I always expect, what are you talking about? That's not even a real name. But this is Mike. I'm here with Emily. Uh, Dear Prudence, say hello. Hi. Hi. And we got your letter. And um, Emily, why don't you begin? So I know you wrote to me about what do I think, but let's get a read from you on where you are uh, at going forward with introducing your son to your father. I think that I want to meet with my dad and, you know, kind of take it slow, see where he is in life, you know, what he wants to do. Does he want to have a relationship with his grandson? And also see how I feel, you know, being around him uh, and just go from there. When you say relationship, uh, how deep or complex a relationship are you thinking? He lives in the Philippines. Well, I- I don't think he'll see him much because he only comes to the States maybe four times a year. So it would just be like birthday parties and family events, that kind of thing. I, you know, I don't see them spending a whole lot of time together. I think you hit on a really important point, which is to see how you feel being around your father. Uh, You've essentially cut off uh, relations with him. Yeah. And for people who, you know, he neglected you emotionally and financially, uh, that's very painful. And I hear from a lot of people who are in your situation and they have spouses or friends or other family members say, oh, you've got to reconcile and have, trigger warning for horrible word, closure, uh, which I really don't believe in. So they put a burden on the child who was abused or neglected to heal this mess. And that can come at great emotional costs. So I think you're absolutely right. You need to take your temperature about how you feel about being with your father. That's the number one thing. And that'll tell you a lot. Yeah. And the other thing is, I really don't want to burden Tommy with this issue. You know, he's going to see my dad eventually, even if it's 10 or 15 years from now. And you know, not knowing his grandfather from an early age, I think, would be a problem as well. And, and I just don't think that their relationship is going to be so close that I would be concerned about them being together a lot. Well, as you describe your father, it seems like he's only capable of superficial relationships. So that's what he would have with your son. And a lot of how your son feels about this is going to come from cues from you. Grandpa will just be this older guy, let's hope he's nice or kind of fun or brings a gift. And your son is really young now. He's not missing this grandfather. He doesn't even understand the concept of him. But over time, without trashing your father... You can just say, you know, my dad was not very much in my life the way I am in yours. I don't know. It's it's weird. I don't know him that well. You know, he lives far, far away. So I want you to get to know him, but he's just not going to be a big presence. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's good advice. 
And the other thing I like that you mentioned in this letter is that your wife's really on your side and she's saying, I want to go by how what you feel. She's saying, I have a preference for our son, knowing your father at least, but I'm not pushing this phony kumbaya, let's hug and forget the past. She's letting you take the lead, which is really important because I do hear a lot from spouses who don't really understand what that whole relationship was like and how painful it was, saying, oh, just make up and get over it. So it's good that your wife is saying, you take the emotional lead. Yeah, she's been great. It's interesting. She has a very good relationship with her parents, but in, you know, she supports me ultimately. So, and I really do appreciate that. Well, it does sound like you have good support from all your family members, but your dad, maybe that's what you need. Maybe that as members of families, we could, you know, take one black sheep, but not more than one and takes every other family member to unite and overcome the problems and the ripples that that person causes. I don't know that that's true, but in your case, if it is true, you'll find a way to forge ahead. So, Thanks so much. Thank you both. Thanks, Mike, and thanks, Emily. Bye. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Well, Emily, I think this went well. I think we uh, offered some good advice. You know, if the world reacts according to our expectations, things will be good. (laughs) (laughs) Emily Yaffe writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, game misconduct. In hockey news that, if you cared about, you'd have already known, the New York Islanders lost last night to put themselves on the brink of elimination in the NHL playoffs. If this happens, if they're eliminated, it won't be much different from what has been happening to the Islanders since they won four straight Stanley Cups in the early 80s. The team from Long Island hasn't won a playoff series in 20 years. But there is something that would change that would go away forever. And that thing is this place. The Islanders' home arena, the Nassau Coliseum, sorry, the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, would not implode, but would begin the slow fade. Next year, the Islanders are moving to a newer, better, more luxurious home, the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The Barclays Center is accessible by 10 rail lines, not the zero that the Nassau Coliseum currently boasts. The Barclays Center was built at a cost of a billion dollars. It opened two and a half years ago. Nassau Coliseum was built at a cost of $32 million when it opened 43 years ago. The Barclays Center offers every amenity a new arena offers. The Nassau Coliseum is beset with every one of the drawbacks you would expect from an aging husk of hockey glory hard by the Meadowbrook Parkway. But Islander fans like Joel Hirschbein of Oceanside in Nassau County are not happy with the move. This is my home. I'm I'm 15 minutes from here. I'm an Islander. I'm a Long Islander, born and raised. Is this a good coliseum or a bad coliseum that contains a lot of good memories? Uh, Well, to be honest, I grew up after the dynasty, so I've seen some rough teams. But uh, there's no better uh, hockey environment in the NHL. I truly believe that. Joel was wearing a number nine jersey, Clark Gillies. He played for the Stanley Cup winning teams. Robert Singata of Merrick was wearing a bold mismatch of a jersey with pictures of the actual Coliseum on it and the words, the barn. 
It was originally an insult because it's so uh, so small and it's ratty looking, but uh, we took it, absorbed it, and it's our place. It's our home base. So do you think this is a great arena or just uh, an okay arena where great hockey and great memories were made? I think it's a great arena. I mean, I think it does need to be expanded a little, you know, bathroom-wise and uh, alley, you know, walking through the corridors, but I think it's just great. It's awesome. It's sad to leave and see it go. Complaints about the bathrooms in sports arenas are like complaints about the traffic in L.A., meaning both valid and sometimes debilitating. As you get your ticket scanned, you enter a not wide enough concourse. The row of men online for the bathroom blends into the row of men buying beers and therefore who will soon need to be in the bathroom. This is the hallway, the concourse outside the arena. So a lot of lines, a lot of noise, a lot of people milling about. But it's not inside the arena. And that's important because the smaller inner space locks in the noise. But now let me pause, let me step out of the frenzy and offer a quieter thought. Nostalgia, a pain for the past, is a great deceiver. We hear the crowds raucous and at capacity, and it's hard not to say, wow. And it's hard not to judge leaving all this excitement behind as a great loss. But for years, for decades really, there was no excitement. Evaluating the Nassau Coliseum at a moment of peak frenzy is like evaluating the streets of lower Manhattan in the moments during a ticker tape parade. It's exceptional, meaning it is the exception. This place earned not just the name The Barn, which could connote a hoedown, but also the Nassau Mausoleum. And it's too Islanders-centric to think that the hockey team was the only game in town. The Nassau Coliseum was an important music venue. This place saw a lot of rock history, even if hearing that history wasn't the best use of the Coliseum. The acoustics in the Coliseum were, ter- were terrible. And so it, would, it wasn't like built for that. It was built for hockey. So you'd hear the checks very loudly against the boards. But like stuff would just bounce off those walls. There was no baffling or anything. And so it was really loud. Brian Koppelman grew up in Roslyn. He was dropped off by his mom as a teenager in a place that was deemed safe and suburban. At the Nassau Coliseum, he once bumped into, literally smacked into a Van Halen roadie, causing the guy to spill spaghetti all over himself. And I knocked his tray of food uh, just all over him. And it was like spaghetti and the sauce. And he was, it was everywhere. And they were playing, you know, in the cradle of rock. And I could bear, you know, hear it down uh, in the thing. He looked at me and I looked at him. And he took mercy on me for whatever reason. He just kind of like had that resigned look like, well, I chose a life of rock and roll and yeah. I got to deal with these dipshits. But Nassau Coliseum on Long Island? We're not talking Van Halen. We're really talking about one act. Uh, well, this is right when I was, I guess, just about to be in the movie business, and I wasn't quite. I had started playing basketball with uh, a guy who was married to the actress Kathleen Turner. And they invited me, do you want to see Billy Joel on Long Island? Do you want to see Billy Joel on Long Island? You know, that weird, <laughs> that voice. Yes. I said, oh, that seems like it would be great. She's like, uh, great, we'll pick you guys up in the limousine. 
And I thought, she really still, really? <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting jazzed because we're... It's at least a permanent affectation, the voice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, but we go out and then, and it was one of those like great, real true Spinal Tap moments because the whole way out, and I'm sure they did have a wonderful friendship with one another, and, um, but the whole way out, uh, they were talking about their close friendship and how exciting it was going to be for Billy. And I was so excited because as a Long Island boy, I really, I love Billy Joel and his music. And we go and we go backstage. He comes off stage and we're back there. And Kathleen goes, Billy. And he goes, hey, Kathleen, got to go. And gets on his <laughs> chopper, walks out to the back, into the thing, chopper, gone. And we're just standing there feeling just feeling like such a schmuck. If you're on the fence as to whether that story elevates or diminishes former Hicksville High School student Billy Joel, consider this further tale of Joel. This one comes courtesy of Peter Thomas Fornatel, whose dad was a big-time FM DJ in New York. In fact, Pete Fornatel Sr. is said to have hosted the first rock music show on the FM band in the New York market. Billy Joel knew that history. A 10 on the enthusiastic scale would be Billy Joel because it sort of came over to us as opposed to us coming over to him and had a whole speech about, oh, I learned so much about music listening to your dad. He's one of my favorites. He really went out of his way to talk about what WNEW meant to him, what my dad meant to him in a way that just went like far beyond what one would have been obliged to do by, uh, by social norms. It was very clear he was a legitimate fan, and, and I'd always liked Billy, but that took my uh, enthusiasm for him to another level. Here's Billy Joel introducing a song you might have heard of at the Nassau Coliseum. The year's 1982. Everybody, we have a new It's an only bit of goodie. It was announced today that Billy Joel would play the last concert at the Nassau Coliseum on August 8th, which is perfect. Perfectly in line with all the payons to the Nassau Coliseum that have been pouring forth. The truth is that Billy Joel will play the last show before renovations. The Nassau Coliseum is being turned over to none other than Bruce Ratner, the developer who built the Barclays Center that lured the Islanders away. Perhaps under Ratner, the Coliseum will go from white elephant to something like a red fox, meaning smaller but more adaptable to the current environment. Or perhaps maybe it'll be imploded to make way for the next shopping mall Nassau doesn't need. Perhaps it'll be remembered for the sellout crowds and not the years of silent indifference. I will think of it as the place that I caught a puck, Islanders versus Penguins, the place I celebrated two of my birthdays, Circus and the New York Arrows indoor soccer game. The place where I saw Tom Petty and Prince and Springsteen and Billy Joel in my very first concert ever. He would switch the lines in New York State of Mind. He would go from saying from Chinatown to Riverside and at the Coliseum he would say from Levittown to Oceanside, my hometown. And those will be good memories because I will, I will not remember the discomfort the Nassau Coliseum had in booking hip-hop acts or the sometimes not too thinly veiled opposition to a project that could have saved the Coliseum, where opponents singled out the high-density plan that included affordable housing as, quote, not consistent with what Long Island is all about. Who knows, maybe the Islanders will play a few games here next year. Maybe they'll go on a winning streak this year, dig their nails into the old barn, unwilling to be ripped away. But in reality, 
They and this building seem headed for a speedier exit than Billy Joel racing toward a helicopter with the blades already whirling. Now John at the bar is a friend of mine He gets me my drinks for free And he's quick with a joke or a light up the smoke But there's some place that he'd rather be that's it for today's show. I want to thank Peter Thomas Fornatel. He joins us to talk about spirits. He wrote the book Brooklyn Spirits. I want to thank Brian Koppelman. He hosts a show on the Panoply Network called The Moment. Just producer Andrea Salenzi steals the puck from Playfair, makes her way up by as she shuffles it along to Tonelli, who executes a drop pass to managing producer Joel Meyer. Meyer, met by McKegney, tied up, works the puck over to executive producer Andy Bowers. Bowers centers it to Trottier. One time, save Edwards, rebound, bossy, kick save, just gets it, just shoots. Just scores! Just scores! They're mobbing the chest! The red light is on! Just scores! Pandemonium! The gist wins it! Thanks for listening! Hi, I'm James Ledbetter, host of Inc. Uncensored podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, cool companies, and everything else that hits the like buttons of my colleagues. This week, we'll be talking with Maria Aspen about the rise of online lending and why finance is really cool now, really. And John Fine about the pugilistic case for take your kids to work today, literally. <laughs> and Chris Frieswick about the 10th annual Inc. Magazine and Inc.com 30 under 30 and why it makes me feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Plus whiskey and vaping and a genuine spit take. So subscribe to Inc. Uncensored at iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm. <laughs>